Hello and welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're taking a wartime tour of Carrick, Fergus and County Antrim, and we're talking all things US Rangers with Adrian Hack. Adrian's a tour guide in Carrick, Fergus, and hugely knowledgeable about all things Second World War in the town and surrounding area. Adrian, welcome to the podcast. We are delighted to finally get the chance to have you on. Uh, now, me and you have met up at several events, and we usually end up having a good chat about life in Northern Ireland during the Second World War. But for those of our listeners who don't know you yet, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted your interest in the conflict? Yes, thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, my name's Adrian Hagg. I'm just an ordinary bloke from Carrick, Fergus. Um, I'm nothing more than that. I'm not a historian or particularly well-read on certain events, but I grew up with uh, the Second World War really around me because um, my parents both lived during the war. Uh, my dad was a teenager in Carrick, Fergus, so that to me was fairly humdrum and not particularly interesting. But I always listened to my mum's stories because... Um, she was a young girl in Eindhoven in the Netherlands during the war, and she had stories about the occupation, the invasion, uh, parachutists coming over for Operation Market Garden, getting dresses made out of parachutes, um, and then the liberation. Um, and she was always forever grateful for the Allied servicemen who risked everything uh, to liberate her, her family, country, and city. Um, so I used to have all these wee snippets of stories and I listened to my mum and never really sat down and asked my dad what it was like for him in Northern Ireland growing up during the war as a teenager because, to be honest, until four or five years ago, I didn't think there was much happening in Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I just thought we were this way, safe way, isolated part of the UK, and not much really happened. And it's only really in the last four or five years that I started to realise that the story of my dad's hometown is every bit as interesting and as exciting as my mum's in Eindhoven was, but from a completely different So uh, that's just been a great journey. And to be honest with you, it's brought me closer to my dad than I've ever been. He, he passed away literally a week before I turned 18. Um, and I've never really sat down and asked him about, about him. Too busy at school, playing football, working part-time on the farm, that type of thing. Never sat and spoke to him, and then um, when he's gone, there's, there's no point in him to talk to. And just now, I've been finding out what's happening in my wee small hometown, and I realise now that the things I talk about during my tour are things that my dad would have experienced and seen, and it's really brought me so much closer to him than, than I could ever have imagined. And as as you've said there, and as I have discovered, and anyone who who goes on to wartime and I or listens to this podcast, uh, will will gradually be learning. There was a lot going on here in uh, in Northern Ireland, and your hometown uh, of Carrick Fergus is best known in some circles as the place where the United States Army activated the first U.S. Ranger Battalion. Uh, this happened only five months after elements of the U.S. Army arrived in Ulster in 1942. Uh, what can you tell us about these events? Well, let's get to that event. I'm going to take you back hundreds and hundreds of years in a, a strange, convoluted way. Um, I mean, the town of Carrickford, this was a, a military stronghold from the very time our wonderful castle was established there in 1177. 
Uh, we had British Army presence in there. It was expanded in the First World War uh, into some land just outside our railway station, an area called Sunnylands, which became then a British Army camp, killing camp, um, basically for the First World War. When the First World War concluded, and it was the war to end all wars, obviously that didn't work out particularly well. The Irish problem had gone away, and that didn't work out particularly well, but we didn't know that at the time. So by the time the town got to about 1927, 1928, the big thing was about demilitarisation. So the castle was handed back to the state to be a tourist attraction, which it is today. And Sunnyland's camp basically was sold up, and all the parts and components were from farmers and so on. Uh, but then we roll forward to 1939, uh, Second World War breaks out. British Army are always looking for new sites they can use. Um, Count Fergus Council at the time offered the old Sunnyland campsite back to the British Army in 1939. British Army said it's not good enough. You don't want it. 1940, after Dunkirk, opinions change. They come back and ask, can we have Sunnyland's camp back again, please? The infrastructure. And it became a British uh, army camp again from 1940 until, like you said, the Americans arrived then in 1942. And within a week, arriving in Belfast, Southland's camp then was formally handed over to be an American station rather than a, a British army one. Um, by the time we get to sort of late May, um, the record is around 40 to 45,000 US troops in the United Kingdom. But over 30,000 of those are sitting in Northern Ireland. It was their first stopping point. Uh, the British military had also been looking at the British Army's use of um, guerrilla tactics, basically using commandos to go in and do short, sharp raids, uh, hit and run, go after intelligence, do a bit of sabotage. And the Americans liked this. They didn't have anything like actual force. Uh, but they liked what these commandos were doing. I thought, you know, I, I think we could do something here as well. Um, and if you're going to recruit for a new fighting force and three quarters of your troops are stationed in one small geographical area, it sort of makes sense that that's where you're going to recruit from. And that's more or less what happened. Um, Major General, I think he was, uh, Hartle, asked the at the camp, uh, William Orlando Darby, to consider recruiting, uh, training, uh, selecting a group of elite fighters for a new battalion to be formed as a commando unit at that stage, they hadn't given a name. Uh, process was we recruited um, officers to start with. And right about, I think the 1st of June, a note went out to all army camps in Northern Ireland saying, any of you boys who think you're fit, you've got good eyesight, and you want to try it for, I think actually the phrase might have been, a new rough, tough uh, unit. Uh, you've got to get yourselves down to sign up to camp with Carrick Fergus, first week in June, and you'll be tried out and tested for selection for this new unit. And that's more or less what happened. Scott, you know, 2,000 American soldiers descended on Carrick Fergus over a period of a week, uh, went through fitness tests, uh, medicals, logical type interviews. Scott, something which, when you read some of the feedback, it's things like, um, could you slit a man's throat? Um, have you ever shot a man before in any capacity? Um, have even just been in bar brawls um, to just find out how people even just responded to that question. But really what they were looking for were good eyesight, brave, fit, and a type of intelligence that allowed you to think on your feet. This wasn't going to be a regiment that would go in on force in thousands and attack at an emplacement. 
it would be small units who had to think independently. So during that, that process, then that's, that's more or less what they did. Interviews were tough, had to pass your medical. But the key thing, Scott, that they're famous for really is their their fitness. Um, they call them forced speed marches. And you might not think it's particularly fast, but try and imagine this. Full army kit, none of your fancy lightweight gear you get now, fancy boots, just whatever your normal kit is, kit bag on. You gather at the start of the camp, the entrance to the camp, and you want a five-mile speed march. And you come out the gate and you turn left. And if anybody knows Carrick Fergus at all, when you turn left and you up our north north road, it's a steep old hill to even walk up. But that was their route. Up that hill, back round, five-mile route, back in through the front gates, one hour. If you're not back in an hour or you've fallen by the wayside with blisters or cramp, too bad, lorries will be in for you to take you back to your, your original unit. Um, and that route march was extended and extended. So by the end of your second week there, 12 miles in two hours, but they did give you a five-minute break halfway around. Uh, now, I couldn't walk that sort of stuff, I think, without a kit bag on, so my, my hat comes off to them. Remember, this was June, and it particularly warm June as well, 1942. So that's just the starting point for these boys, you know. And even that basic fitness test, Whittled the numbers down from near 2000 to between 550 and 600. Um, and at the end of that, they were told on the 19th of June, 1942, they paraded on the ground in Sunnyland's camp. And their commanding officer, Darby, said, Right, fellas, basically from today, you'll be known as the 1st Battalion United States Rangers. That was their official title given to them. Up in Kite Fergus, 19th of June, 1942. And we're exactly proud of having done that. It's an absolutely fantastic story. And I, I believe to this day, they're still the only uh, American battalion formed on, on what was called foreign soil, uh, but was certainly formed overseas outside of the United States. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the way I picked it up, Scott. I mean, there's a few people have contacted me and said, oh, we've put we've other units that were formed uh, outside of America, but they, they tended to have been maybe an amalgamation of other units. But I do think that the Rangers were the only one where actually was a brand new unit. You got a volunteer to come along. There was a selection process around just being allocated a new division. So I think from that perspective, then yes, they, they I suspect, are the only American unit ever formed from scratch outside the United States. So we've, we've whittled them down to about 500, 600 uh, soldiers. Um, gone through rigorous interviewing and um kind of physical physical selection what was next uh, for the men of the rangers in carrick yeah well for the next week um they continued with their speed marches and their fitness training um but by the end of june they were really sent off to um commando school in the highlands of scotland a place called acme carrick just outside spain bridge and that's where British and French commandos were being trained on a regular basis. Um, but even then, the speed marches were a feature because they got off the train and they did a speed march, I think it was about 10 miles from there, from the train to the camp. No luxuries about noise picking them or anything. So that was still built into their, their techniques. Um, and when they got there, from a moment with you, Scott, again, right, I can't vouch for this, but I'm just from, from the stories of the men who were there. I just get the impression that shortly after they arrived, they 
the instructors there were basically tough commando sergeants who'd seen frontline service and then were being brought back to bring their expertise into new commando units. I, had, I think they had this opinion that these Americans were taking up very valuable training time, which could be devoted to what they saw the traditional British and French commandos. Um, and it took a little while, I think, for the Rangers to even win over this trust about, you know, we are tough. Um, we deserve our place here. We deserve your attention. And I, and I think the turning point seems to be that in the early stages of their training, there's a, a little test that the commandos do where they, they, they climb up a, a large rail. Uh, it's about 18, 20 feet high. I think it is maybe a bit further. And you climb up one side and then you come across the top and then you drop down on the open ground with your tip mill on. But the commando instructors um, just changed one word in the instruction for the rangers. So the commandos were told, climb up over the top and drop down. The rangers were told, climb to the top and then jump down. So the rangers actually stood on the top bar, made the even higher jump down. And I think it's at the end of that exercise, which we all completed, I think there was an element of, yeah, these boys from America actually are tough. Uh, and they are here to do a job. And you know what? The relationship got really, really strong afterwards. So they come in, continue down with basically commando training, exactly the same sort of things that British commandos were entering. So we had um, crossing rivers on zip lines, um, swimming across rivers in full kit, keeping your, your equipment dry, um, assault courses, uh, live fire exercises were... Unfortunately, I think one ranger was killed and about 14 were, were badly injured and had to return to the States. Um, and they tried to make the experience as, as real life as they can and as tough as they can because there's nothing prepares you for a real battle. But they wanted to get them as close to that as they possibly could. So training, I think, in commando school probably lasted about 68 weeks. I think it was between that and going to, to um, uh, Dundee for a bit of training there as well. But basically, they were being prepared for amphibious assaults, um, cliff climbing, um, and then rapid attacks. Um, and that's why we're, they were taught like how to use mortars, how to use basically any form of uh, gun that they could find. It wasn't a case of just, here's a specialist weapon. Being a small unit, going behind enemy lines, you sometimes have to grab just what's lying around. So I think they were showing how to use typically their American equipment, obviously but also British equipment, and in some cases, even if any German equipment had been captured, just showing what they could use. Because again, they were being encouraged to you know, think on your feet when you're in the heat of battle, just use what you have around you. Um, so, I mean, tough, tough place. You know, I mean, there's plenty of documentaries about what the commandos went through, and there's no evidence that the Rangers were given a softer time or anything because they weren't seen as being part of the British Army. I think, if anything... It might be the other that had a probably a tougher time than even the commandos would have had. So they're they're over there in Scotland, proving themselves to British Army instructors. Um, they've left Northern Ireland, and you know about about ten years ago when I started um, all of my research, I'd often thought that the first Americans to leave Ulster were those that were bound for Operation Torch in North Africa. But I've obviously learned that that is not true. Uh, the Rangers ended up in Dieppe, but all did not go well. No, it didn't. Um, halfway through that commando training we were doing in Scotland, uh, 50 of the Rangers were selected um, to go to the south of England at that time for what they were told was um, advanced training. 
alongside commando units. So they went down to places like Weymouth um, and even into Croydon in London, which had been bombed, to give them an idea of what it was like uh, to fight maybe in a bombed city and so on. But the happy told them to advance training. A um, couple of days before the actual day of raids, we're talking about 16th, 17th of August 1942, they're finally told that actually this is more than just advanced training by the commandos, that these 50 rangers are going to attach themselves to commando units and take play, or take part on a raid on France. At that stage, I don't think they were told exactly what the target was or that it was going to be a raid on France. Uh, by about the 18th, 19th, they were um, getting more information about, yeah, there's actually going to be, yeah, I'm going to split you up a little bit. So you had uh, some commandos were attached with, sorry, some rangers were attached to commandos who were the attack bottom placement either side of the air. Um, and some, I think, with the, the main assault on the, on the centre. Um, the overall day raid, when you look at the analysis at the end of it, is a complete and utter disaster. Um, it was mainly Canadians took part in the, the, the main assault. It was about, I think, six, six and a half thousand maybe Canadians took part. And I think only 40% made it back to Britain. The rest were either killed or captured. At the end, nearly a thousand Canadians maybe killed on that one day on the 19th of August. And about two and a half, three thousand of them were, were captured. Um, now, there's different reasons, but there are different thoughts about the raid. I've recently come to the conclusion that it was actually a, a better planned raid than we maybe were earlier led to believe, that there was definitely an objective in hand. But irrespective of the time that went into it and their objective, the loss of life was horrendous, but it was the first chance for the Rangers to have proved themselves. And four of those 50 Rangers were attached to Number Four Commando, and their objective was to take it one of these gun placements uh, to the west of Bieppe. And they landed uh, about 4:30 in the morning on the beach, climbed a cliff, which had all been trained to do, and were sitting about 100 yards short of the gun placement, and they were to be there for about an hour before the assault on the gun was meant to take place. 15 minutes later, they noticed there was activity uh, at the gun emplacement and the decision was given to go early to make sure that these guns did not fire at the ships off spot war. And one of those uh, US uh, Rangers was a fellow called Franklin Marion Zip Coons, and he was a sniper in position. And when the instruction went out to lay down suppressing fire for the assault on the battery, he was the first American soldier to fire a shot in European soil. And during his uh, time during that battle, he was there for about an hour as a sniper. He's estimated to have killed between 15 and 20 enemy soldiers and therefore became the first American soldier to kill an element, another enemy soldier on the European soil. He stayed in place until the assault was a complete success. That, that one assault on the gun basement was 100% successful. Uh, the commandos and rangers retreated, uh, couldn't stay in position to the very, very end. He was so late coming back from his position, he was nearly shot by his own men, thinking he was German, coming onto the beach. And for his bravery, he was later awarded the British military Medal, which is fairly unusual for someone who's not British or part of the Commonwealth or Dominions. That was a success. The failure was on the opposite flank, where other Rangers were helping other commandos on the eastern coast to do exactly the same thing on a gun emplacement, but their boats were intercepted by motor torpedo launches and they never really got off the beat. And then in the more central attack, there was a few Rangers set foot on it, including uh, Lieutenant Lustelow, 
or Louis de Lot, I'm never sure that Bunch you think the French background, uh, Lieutenant Louis de Lot, and he was killed uh, almost immediately. He landed on one of the beaches and he became then the first American soldier to lose his life on European soil. Uh, so from a group of just 50 rangers who were sent for advanced training, suddenly you have them active on the front line. Remember, this is almost exactly just two months after they've been formed as a ranger unit and left Northern Ireland. Here they are on the beaches uh, of France, uh, right in up close and personal to the, to the Germans, uh, firing the first shot, killing the first soldier, losing their first casualty, winning British military medals. They proved themselves, Scott, so much so that there was always a fear, I think, from the original Rangers, they wouldn't actually be used as a military unit. They might actually be dispersed back in to share their experiences amongst other soldiers. This one raid showed they were as good as the commandos that they had accompanied on the raid, and that really made their, their name and established them then as a fighting unit. And like you said, then um, they came back to Britain, they continued their training, and then they, they joined the bulk of where the Irish troops, or the, the American troops, left Ireland for, which was Operation Fortune Tunisia. And the 1st Battalion, you're ahead of that as well, they were at the front line of it too. Now, by the time uh, we released this episode of the podcast, the uh, Middle East Antrim uh, Borough Council will have held uh, a couple of events in Carrickfergus to mark the 80th anniversary of the activation of the Rangers. Um, why, uh, Adrian, why do you think it's important for the people of Carrickfergus, people of Northern Ireland, or, or even further afield to remember these events? Personally, Scott, I think anything that happened during the Second World War deserved to be remembered, no matter how insignificant people might think it is. But this is a fairly big event. I mean, the, the, the Rangers still exist today as a fighting unit in the American Army, the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, Rangers have seen frontline service for the Americans in virtually every conflict since the Second World War. They have been elite forces. Um, Saving Private Ryan, that was a Rangers crew that went in to save him. That all filters itself back. If you draw yourself back in time and back in time, and it pivots on Southland's camp in Carrickfergus. I'm not a big advocate of wars. Um, I hate them. Um, but I understand that when they're needed, uh, it's only the best of the best really step forward and put themselves in the line. You can be a conscript, you can be as brave as you like, but these rangers were volunteers and they knew what they're setting themselves up for. And I think that was particular significance. The Rangers' importance hasn't gone away uh, back in the States either. I mean, on the 8th of June this year, only last week, uh, President Biden passed a bill in the law uh, awarding the Congressional Gold Medal to all World War II Rangers. And that's the highest award the Americans can provide to their citizens. Um, and it all pivots back. All of those World War II Rangers probably may not have been Rangers if it hadn't been for the success of what happened here in Carrick Fergus. Um, and we do overlook it, Scott, because um, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody else. I, I live literally a few hundred yards away from the site of the army camp, which is now a housing development. And the gates, or where the gates would have been, with a big boulder, which commemorates this being the founding place of the World War II 1st Battalion Rangers. And I walked past or drove past that stone twice a day, every day in my life. Uh, up until three or four years ago, it was a passing thought of it. Yeah, I'm sure. That, I wonder what that's there for. So what? 
you know, so what? There was an army unit here. And it's only when you then sit back and you look at significance, you talk to some of the family members, and he's very fortunate before he died to be able to speak to one of the last surviving members of that first battalion from Cairn Fergus and listen to his stories. And it's never been about him. It's always about, you know, the job they had to do and stepping forward and my colleagues and all that sort of stuff. And it's just, until you, you meet a, a ranger, even a modern one, Scott, I don't think we understand this. Uh, created, they create this environment of teamwork and spirit that holds them together. It's, it is almost religious in its own regard. And again, I keep saying that, that all pivots to the success of what happened to Clarence Fergus. If that recruitment process had not got the right people, if the training in Scotland hadn't been good enough, if the had been a disaster completely for everybody, and the great and the good in the American army had said, look, these boys haven't proved they're any better than what we've got, it, it may never have gone anywhere. So I always go back and say, you know, go back to the starting point, hit a small patch of land beside the train station, kind of further. and it's, it's quite amazing. So like you said, the councillor run a couple of events. There's um, a family day on the 19th itself to celebrate the 80th anniversary. And the councillor also working on an exhibition uh, to coincide with the raid on Dieppe to try and tell a story of this fellow, this Franklin Coon story. Um, but it all goes back to him coming to Kai Fergus and what he went on to do. But it all pivots. And I think, Scott, you're, you're quite right. There's there's lots of things that Northern Ireland actually was a pivot for during the Second World War. Uh, there's more that I still have to discover about important elements within it. But it's only in the last four or five years I've come to appreciate, you know, the role that this country played during that war was way above what people think. It wasn't just sending men onto the front line. It was so much more than that. Yeah, and um, I will I will share some uh, photos of that, um, that kind of memorial stone uh, from the Sunnyland Estate in Carrick up on the social media, if anybody would like to see that. Um, I'm going to go a little bit left field now, or perhaps we should say midfield or left wing, because the, this famous GS battalion were not the first Rangers to be formed in Carrick Fergus during the Second World War. Uh, as, a, as a little aside, what can you tell us about the Carrick Rangers of 1939? Yeah, a little aside for that. That's my other passion is, is our local football team, Carrick Rangers. And... Um, Come up to there, they, they were formed in 1939. Um, for their 75th anniversary, me and a couple of fellas started doing a book on the history of the club. And I picked the older stuff, going through newspapers. And to be honest, but that's another reason why I do what I do now, because while digging out around the pier when the club was formed, I was picking up snippets about what was happening in the town during the war. But if I take you back then to basically the very day the Second World War broke out, all professional football in the UK just stopped completely suspended, leagues were suspended, contracts were suspended, it was all over. Uh, but football didn't go away. Uh, it went down to like regional leagues and summer leagues and teams still played football and there were army teams. But again, Kai Fergus, for about 15 years before that, we had a very successful uh, summer leagues all the time. And the two most um, popular teams or successful teams were a team called Bubbles and a team called Barn Mills, uh, which was a tax of the the Barn Mills factory. So in the summer of 1939, the two had been vying for the top place in the league. And after a match, they were sitting in a, in a pub one day, or changing rooms, and we're just saying, look, 
wouldn't it be great if we actually just pulled our resources together and created a team that could maybe play in a junior winter league, not just during the summer league? So they agreed that would be the case. They convened a meeting uh, in a place called the Barn Reading Rooms, which would have been for the library and changing rooms area, uh, now long demolished. Uh, agreed to form a new club. And then when they were deciding, well, what are we going to call it? And inside this room, there was a big picture of, uh, I think it was a 1938-1939 Glasgow Rangers league winning team. And that's where they said, well, if we ever emulated these boys, we'd be going some way. So we're from Carrick. There's a Rangers picture up on the wall. And that's it. The team was called Carrick Rangers. So they were officially formed on the 11th of November, 1939. So war's only a couple of months old. And you're probably thinking, like, why would you be forming a football team when war's just broken out? But you have to remember from a, a British perspective, it still seemed to be this phony war. that The battles are all still happening in Poland, maybe it'll all be over and I think there was a sense of it's not maybe going to be as serious as we think. Professional leagues have been suspended fellas still wanted to play football or watch football so in a funny enough way it was nearly a good time to create a football team give you something to concentrate on fellas can still play football and the rest really is history the club they're playing in the top flight it's played in Europe in 1976 Um, and it is my big passion outside of what I do with the World War. So you, you mentioned as well at the top of the podcast that it was sort of family history that that uh, kind of peaked during World War. And unlike you, your mother was not born and bred in Carrick Fergus. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit more about her wartime story? Yeah, my mum Nell is uh, was sorry, just passed away. Now I hit thought about her in the past and nearly obsessed with what to do, but she passed away about ten years ago. Um, was the kindest woman you could ever have met. And when you hear about her, her upbringing, you just you sometimes think it's the kindness of response to her life growing up. They're not saying she had the most horrible of times. Uh, what, what was happening in other parts of Europe, I'm sure, was a lot worse. But uh, she was about four uh, when Germany invaded her home country of the Netherlands. She lived in Eindhoven. Um, and it was a quick quick and decisive attack. Um, Germans were in, in, I think, about four or five days. Um, and suddenly, um, my granddad ran a, it was called a cafe, but if you think about uh, Cafe René from a low, a low, which really, uh, it's a cafe that sells alcoholic drinks with the family can still live above it. That's where my mum lived with her family. Um, the dad ran the cafe, but the family lived behind and above it. If you remember, as a four-year-old, um, the noise and the disruption, but didn't really understand, I think, what was going on, except that suddenly um, the customers that were coming into her, her dad's cafe were men in grey uniform. And that's the way she always described them. Uh, there were men in grey uniform. Um, and then obviously then the German occupation lasted about four years. And one was starting to get a bit older um, and should have helped out. In the wee cafe as well, you know, just collecting glasses and clearing tables, even as a kid that keep her occupied. And she says that the these men in grey uniforms just were, you know, friendly enough. That have bounced her on her knee and stuff, and they were singing songs. And I don't think they really understood at seven or eight years of age the, the consequences of what was going on. Um, but then she does remember 1944. Then the, the sky being full of um, aircraft one night. 
Um, and in hindsight, this turned out to be the uh, Operation Market Garden coming over. Um, but the one thing she remembers about Operation Market Garden is about a week later, um, parachute material arrived into the house and neighbours were making dresses for the kids and stuff. Uh, so she remembers that as a as a consequence or got addressed because of what happened, not realising obviously that battles are going on. And then uh, the liberation, I think it was mainly Canadians, I think Canadians and Poles maybe, were the first through um, Eindhoven. Uh, and again, there was the destruction then, uh, trips everywhere. There was a counter-attack, I think, shortly after Eindhoven was liberated, but then the Allies sort of secured it. And then suddenly her cafe, her dad's cafe, was full of men in green uniform. And from a child's eye, Scott, that's the one way she used to always describe it to me. With a week twinkle in her eye, it was, you know, one week it was men in grey uniform. Then a few weeks later, it was men in green uniform. And that's the distinction she made, which I think is a child's way of saying things. Is It's quite touching in its own little way. So thankfully, she was protected from the worst of things. But just remember... You know, food being scarce about her and some of her brothers and sisters, you know, being told, look after these rabbits out the back, make sure they're well fed, make sure they're looked after, make sure they're clean. And then every now and again, one of the rabbits would disappear into your pot. And if it was your rabbit that had been picked, then you were given the rabbit's brains on your plate as a special treat because apparently it was extra tasty. Uh, but that was it. If you knew it was your rabbit within the pot, if its brains were on your on your plate. Different times from now, Scott, when people just would bulk at that, but I think back then it's make do and men was definitely flavour of the month over in Holland as much as it was anywhere else. It's got with all of that going on, I mean she didn't grow up um hating people, if I'm honest with you. Um she never reconciled her dislike for what the Germans did. Um not as far as hating people, but uh, you heard, already heard about my football interest, but we're watching the World Cup. She always supported whoever the Germans were playing. Didn't matter who the Germans were playing, that's the thing she would have cheered on. Um, but she was honestly the, the kindest person you could ever have met. And I think sometimes it's because she appreciated them from her childhood, how good our childhood had been afterward. Well, people... May not in, enjoy those uh, rabbit brain recipes, yeah. but I, I'm sure they are, have been enjoying your crack and your stories uh, in this episode. Um, if you've been listening and, and kind of liking what you hear from Adrian, you'll be pleased to know that he regularly offers walking tours around many of the wartime sites in Carrick Fergus. Uh, I've been on a couple of these and can heartily recommend them. Adrian, what, what can people expect from your tours? What I hope to do, Scott, is, is basically just take people back 80 years and try and give them an understanding about what that generation went through in terms of civilians having to cope with rationing, the blackout, all those sorts of disruptive things, how infrastructure had to be changed to accommodate um, all these uh, servicemen coming in. I mean, Northern Ireland, over the, the duration of the war, saw something like 300,000 American troops at least passed through Northern Ireland on their way to somewhere else, both having the British Army here and the Belgians and so on. So you'd have to cope with all of that. Um, and then, of course, our factories all changed. I mean, it wasn't just you know, make what you used to make. It's the, the war effort requires you to do something different. So for a small town like Carrick, we were building tanks, parachutes, paradummies, uniforms, life jackets, 
And some of those sites are still there to be seen. They're now maybe apartment blocks or another type of factory, but they're still there. But there's nothing around them. There's no signpost to say, you'll never guess what this was doing 80 years ago. I try and just give people a, a flavour of that. And if anything else, Scott, I mean, I think probably mentioned this to you before, the biggest thing I get out of it is particularly when the younger generation are there, and I ask them, did you ever sit and talk to your your grandparents or anything, anything at home, any old medals lying around for the home guard? Or what's your family's story of the Second World War? Because I've already said, it's got, I, I, I hate wars in general. I'm, I'm not an advocate for it. I mean, you come on my tour, apart from talking about the Rangers going off to Dieppe and so on, I stick away. I stay away from that. But everybody had to survive the war. Everybody's story is different. Uh, People aren't, aren't keen to talk about it. I, I get upset when I think about stories I could have got from my dad and never asked him until it was too late. So I'm always encouraging people to, you know, go and find out what your family history is. Talk to your dad, talk to your granddad. If, if they weren't alive at the time, what were their parents doing? There's, there has to be family stories. And it just helps them understand not just their own family's role, but the role that Northern Ireland had during the war, Scott, I think. We come out of very poor, not even second, probably about tenth, when it comes to parts of the UK that people think are being important. We're talking about, you know, Dunkirk, D-Day, Battle of Britain, the Belfast Blitz, the Blitz is maybe then of, of of Coventry and Liverpool, and Belfast barely gets a mention. Yet ours was devastating. You have, oh yeah, Churchill tanks and parachutes are bit. Yeah, we have that here as well, North Ireland. And I still think head of population, Scott, Northern Ireland more than pulled its weight in every element of the war, whether it was volunteering for active service, bringing up families, getting kids through school, making do with what you've got around you, building stuff in your factories. It's, it's all still there. So my tours are not a lecture. They're really a, a series of collections of stories and observations and photographs and, and artifacts and exhibits that have gone. To try and let you understand what the generation of the late 30s and early 40s would have seen and read about and heard about or experienced themselves. And I want people to go away and start thinking about how does it affect their family, their community, their town, their country. Um, and I think they'll be quite amazed. And it's just great when someone phones you up and says, you know, you put me on road here and I just found out my dad did something remarkable. Oh, he's a fire watcher during, during the blitz. And you just think, well, there you go. Everybody's done their bit. And as well as that kind of wonderful social history and those great family stories, uh, people who uh, go on one of your tours will get the chance to get up close and personal with a Churchill tank. Um, If if any of our listeners want to hear more from you or book one of your tours, uh, where's the best best place to find out more um, or to get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks so much. I wasn't actually here to, to push the tour, but now I've got the chance. Um, my website is legalwaytour.com, um, and I use the socials, mainly Facebook um, and Twitter, and it's um, they're all at legalwaytour. So you get me on Twitter and you get me on Facebook. I'm a Facebook page. Well, you'll know anyway, Scott, but just for anybody who doesn't, I don't use it just to sell tours. Um, if I find any snippets that I find are interesting that other people might want to pick up and run with, uh, at the minute, I'm doing a sort of on this day in 1942, covering the Americans through Northern Ireland, just up until Operation Torch, so good snippets in there, or anything I think was I think people might be interested in about the Second World War, I'll pop it in there as well. It's not a hard sales pitch. 
most definitely sort of place that you pop into, and there's always a wee story in there. People will share stories with me that I put on there as well. So yeah, leadthewaytour.com is the website. Um, Lead the Way Tour is the handle for Twitter and Facebook. Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, as always. Um, hopefully, we'll get a few more people hitting you up on the socials and booking a few tours for over the summer. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for listening, folks. Subscribe to A Wee Bit of War on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favourite shows. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers, break all the rules of the Official Secrets Act, and why not leave us a review to help others find the podcast. Thank you for joining myself and Adrian Hack, and I look forward to your company again next time for another wee bit of war.